Deloitte Private, offering audit, consulting, tax, and advisory professional services to allow private companies to address today's challenges and shape tomorrow's opportunities. Connect with us at Deloitte.com slash US slash private. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music and lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Hi, I'm Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. More than any other region, the transition to a low-carbon economy has been at the center of policymaking in the European Union over the last decade. For the first time in three years, Europe has overtaken China when it comes to electric vehicle adoption. The EU has made strong financial commitments to investing in clean energy with a willingness to explore important technology developments such as hydrogen, and member states have made net zero commitments. However, Europe is still not on track to meet its 2030 clean energy and climate goals. 11 out of 27 member states recorded less than 200 million euros in clean energy investment over the last three years. But one thing I think I can say that we have all learned over the last year is that change can happen much faster than we might anticipate. Coal generation in Europe today is about half of what it was just five years ago. Talk of peak oil demand looked a decade or more away, and now it's possible that it has already happened. So net zero emissions, while they can seem just out of reach, is it? And that is the question that BNF's team looked to address in the European Energy Transition Outlook. So today I speak with the primary authors, Dario Trum, who is our global head of energy transition research, and Andreas Gandolfo, the head of European power research here at BNEF. The report, the European Energy Transition Outlook, can be found at bnef.com via our app or at BNFGo on the Bloomberg Terminal. Additionally, you can find the research that it was built off of, which is an extensive flagship piece we published every year titled The New Energy Outlook. Now note that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we always have a full disclaimer at the end of the show. But for now, let's dive in regarding the European energy transition. Andreas and Dario, let's start at the beginning. Tell us why this is the right time for us to be talking about Europe in particular when it comes to the energy transition. Last year, I mean, the the main topic for everyone was, of course, COVID. But uh, most of the the listeners of the podcast and and BNF followers would have uh, noticed that 2020 was also a really big year for climate ambition. So uh, we've seen a number of of key economies uh, commit to net zero targets uh, for the first time. Uh, that has included South Korea, Japan. Uh, we've even had a carbon neutrality pledge in China. And of course, uh, Europe wanting to stay uh, ahead and, and continue to, to, to raise its uh, climate ambition flag, uh, managed to essentially get all 27 uh, member states to uh, commit to carbon uh, neutrality net zero by 2050. Uh, but more importantly, and, and that's what makes it very concrete and, and, and really something to, to look at right away, uh, minus 55% emissions reduction by 2030 from, from 1990 levels. So a, a real ratcheting up ambition of ambition, and it means many more sectors than the typically uh, affected to, to date uh, power sector uh, will have to be looked at in coming years. 
Right. So there's a lot happening in Europe right now, and policy is actively changing the landscape as we go forward into this next year and beyond. Now, we at BNEF do like to look at what the potential is for a lot of the different technologies that we look at out into the future. And Andreas, can you talk to all of us listening today about what that exercise is and how do we kind of look at the world without policy and why is it so important then that we layer that on right now? So as you said, yeah, at Bloomberg, every year at uh, BNF, we do this big report, the New Energy Outlook. Everyone uh, knows about it. Everyone hears about it. And essentially, it's uh, an exercise on how economics can drive the energy transition. Essentially, it's a mostly cost-driven scenario that looks at what's the cheapest system that we can build in the future that essentially can make sure the lights stay on. Um, that is a very good exercise. It it sets down a very good foundation. But when it came to Europe, we found that NEO was essentially too global for uh, it to answer some specific questions that we had in Europe. And at the same time, because of the neutral approach that it wants to uh, take and uh, for it to be able to compare different regions, essentially strips out completely the effect of policies, which uh, in Europe and in the European context has been very important in the past. And at the moment, as Dario told us, essentially is going to be very important uh, going forward. So we wanted to add that back in. Um, keeping our economic transition scenario as a starting point and keeping the fundamental methodology of, you know, this is still a least cost system, so it's the cheapest way to to do all of this, but adding in there the effects of electrifying energy demand, for example, the effects of reducing the cost of offshore wind by socializing, for example, the transmission expense, you know, what's happening in Germany, where, you know, they essentially develop a project up to a specific point, then they hold an auction and buy the right to build a project that um, has a cable going to it. You know, the effect of targets, 2030 targets, Europe um, has an increased ambition uh, and it wants to hit some specific numbers by 2030. And finally, and probably one of the most important things that we've tweaked here is is increased decarbonization ambition. So one of the parameters we've changed is looking at what happens if Europe increases its 2030 emissions reduction target from uh, 40% today, 50% in our, let's say, current policy scenario, and up to 55% in our ambitious policy scenario. However, I think Dario can attest that essentially our current policy scenario is very soon uh, likely going to have 55% as its emission reduction target. And our ambitious policy scenario will have to be updated for the next iteration next year to probably look at even higher targets. Maybe one reference to, to the podcast of Ian Berryman, who, who is the man behind the, the machine and the tool we, we use to explore these different scenarios made. He mentioned that in, in The Avengers, this character uh, goes to all these parallel universes to, to figure out which one is the one in which they, they manage to, to beat the, the bad guy. For him, Neo was essentially about playing out all these alternate scenarios and finding uh, which one it is where we can meet demand in the cheapest possible way. And unfortunately, really in Europe, um, that, that wasn't uh, challenging enough. So, so what we decided to do with Andreas was to uh, go through all these alternative universes and find uh, the one where not only 
do we optimize for cost, but we also uh, deliver on, on the climate ambition of the European Union, so, so climate neutrality. I love how you said not challenging enough. Come on, guys, you guys are overachievers. And for those listening, if you haven't heard Ian Berryman's podcast, he gets into the complexity of just how incredibly detailed this model is. You know, it takes us a year to really turn the crank, so to speak, and find out all the different things. But talking about this expansion on that incredible piece of work, so that this Europe-specific look, what we essentially have done here are more scenarios. So you've got scenario one, which is the new energy outlook, and then there's two additional ones at their most basic sense. Can you just explain what the two scenario offshoots are that we come up with for this piece of work? Yeah, I mean, at, at their most basic level, we up the decarbonization ambition. So we go from an economic transition scenario that assumes essentially... That everybody just wants to do what's right in terms of economics, right? You want to do things that are the cheapest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it strips out all policy beyond the one that we already see. Then we created the current policy scenario uh, where we essentially try to see what's announced today, some targets that we usually tend to exclude because we think there is no uh, exact way of how to get there. And then we add on top of that, let's say some delayed electrification. So Europe, we assume that Europe will start electrifying energy demand, but that comes late in 2030. And then our ambitious policy scenario builds on top of that. And it just essentially goes a step further. It says Europe starts electrifying tomorrow. It also starts building deep decarbonization technologies by 2030 at large scale to replace gas and coal. Um, it phases out coal completely by 2040. And it also ups its emission reduction target for 2030. So this is the policy scenario for overachievers, or maybe it's the policy scenario for actually getting to net zero, right? Yes. Unfortunately, we've called it ambitious policy scenario, but in reality, it itself doesn't get us exactly to zero emissions by 2050. It gets us close so that the net becomes an important detail in the way this whole 2050 target has been praised. I just wanted to go back on the... Uh, economics uh, approach and, and, and people are doing what is the cheapest and, and that is right. I mean, the reality is in energy systems, there, there's quite a lot of cultural preferences and, and inertia and, and approaches. And so it's really BNF and, and some other entities who like to look at uh, things from the economics driven way and cost optimization way that rely on these uh, on these scenario. But actually governments tend to favor one sector over the other because uh, they're interested in the jobs they can create or obviously the French, you know, we have a, a long love for nuclear. So it's not so that um, economics is, is the main driver in, in reality. And I think what those scenarios allowed us to explore here in Europe, where we have a very dense uh, set of countries with uh, each other with their targets and, and, and their goals, was on one hand to check, you know, what is current plans and current ambition uh, getting us to? Is it aligned with what the EU is, is hoping to achieve? And turns out actually current national plans aren't delivering. And then the third one, which is one where I guess, you know, we had a bit more fun was to say, you know, how close can we get to net zero? And that's where we we pushed the boat out. And, and as Andrea said, there is a little bit left at the end, uh, but but it's quite quite um, it's quite close. And but but the implications that it has in terms of renewables deployment, in terms of of dispatchable capacity extra, uh, which we'll talk about more. Uh, are, are quite enormous. So it's, it's really interesting to see those numbers come out. Well, so let's talk about that. So we know now that Europe has announced some of the most ambitious targets, but those aren't going to get us to net zero. So let's kind of, 
let's not fixate on the not quite getting an A on the scorecard. And let's say, what's that next step? How far away are we in Europe to getting to net zero? And what do the targets need to look like in order for us to get there? I mean, if I could start maybe on, on all things renewables, I think one thing we're seeing across both the current policy scenario and the ambitious policy scenario is that renewables deployment needs to right away double from the record levels we've, we've seen to date. And if we look at that net zero scenario in, in the later parts of the modeling period, so the 2030s, 2040s, you actually see almost a tripling uh, of renewables deployment. And, and I think when we talk about you know, what, what does Europe need to do and is the rea- current reality aligned with, with, with this ambition, clearly there, there is a gap uh, in the volumes of investment and, and commitments. We've had some good news on the side of investment activity in 2020, despite COVID. So our, our investment numbers came out uh, a week ago, I think around now. And, and Europe was was actually really coming out on top, but it's been limited to, to some asset classes in countries. So offshore wind is going through a really good period, but then you have some serious bottlenecks in onshore wind in Germany, in Italy, auctions not clearing. So I think one of the first uh, takeaways from from the economic to the ambitious policy scenario, um, renewables deployment conditions need to improve on the ground uh, if we are to have both an economic power system and one that helps us uh, deliver our goals. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. At Deloitte Private, our passion for innovation creates powerful opportunities as we advise our private clients on ways to stay ahead of change, to leverage technology to drive progress, and to transform disruption into lasting value. Deloitte Private brings the service depth and breadth of Deloitte, tailored specifically to the unique demands of privately held, family-owned, and venture-backed companies. Connect with us at Deloitte.com US private. Okay, so we need to electrify, we need tons of clean power to do it. Now, what does that mean for everything else? As you said, Dana, we need to electrify. And one of the things that we see actually through our modeling is that electrification drives renewable growth. At this point in Europe, these are the cheapest uh, options for meeting electricity needs pretty much up, up at around until 80% of our electricity needs, even if these grow. And this is one of the things that mainly drives our outlook uh, in the European energy transition outlook. However, this means that we have a, a bunch of plants that are going to shut down. And this is primarily coal, uh, but also gas will have to make way in Europe. Uh, a lot of it is just you know, comes at the end of technical lifetime, uh, but some of it is also displaced by renewables. However, in this whole process of the energy transition, and as coal and gas shut down, what we do find is that actually there is still some market opportunity in our outlook is gas and a combination of uh, some unknown technologies on an economic basis, renewables can get you to around 80%. Beyond that, we need to start doing some very weird mental exercises to go to 100% of our electricity needs with wind and solar. We start building systems that just don't make sense. You know, we deploy a small country's worth of batteries. We start making statements such as like a third of Germany needs to be covered in solar panels. And that's how you get to, to your energy needs. And, and this essentially shows that, and this is one of the reasons why in our outlook, we don't get to zero in 2050, even in our most ambitious scenarios. That's a lot of solar panels for a country that already has a lot of solar panels. 
Yes, it is. And actually, worryingly enough, you're, you're building that many solar panels and you end up wasting about 80% of your energy, right? So so you're building, building, building just so you can eke out uh, always less and less and less, which essentially tells us that, you know, we need something else. And at the time, it's at the moment, it's gas. But of course, if we want to get to zero, net zero, and eventually zero, uh, it's going to have to be something else. Well, so that brings up a good point. So right now, it is gas, and new plants are going in, and it's seen as, you know, this isn't the perfect technology from a decarbonization standpoint, but it's going to give us flexible dispatch, and it's going to be something that we can do right now to really decarbonize. But these plants can stick around for a long time. So what do we do about all the infrastructure that we're building now? And how useful is that going to be for us? Is it going to be really useful in bridging the gap for the next five years or 10 years? Or are these timelines changing? One of the things we've started to see in Europe is policy emerge on the side of legacy assets or the assets that will become legacy. So uh, probably won't be a surprise to anyone that coal phase outs are, are quite in vogue. Uh, a large chunk of, of European coal now is already covered by phase out schedules. Uh, we have some some of the few countries missing that are have ongoing discussions and, and even Poland now by joining the net zero club by 2050 is also kind of committing to, to get out of coal by then. And when you look at what those policy packages are made of, it's not just, oh, in 2025, a call has to be online and, and good riddance. It's also looking at, you know, how do you make sure that the owners of these plants are receiving uh, indemnization for, for the, the, the lost market activity, but also how the communities working in these plants are, are getting supported. And so on the front of call, at least, it feels like the legacy issue and, and, and giving a way out of the market to these assets that is not just driven by their lack of, of economic uh, potential, which is suppressed by the carbon price, is happening. What our outlook uh, does, and, and I think Andreas can talk well to, to the reason why there is a technology X, is it highlights that gas actually is going to have to be taken care of next. And, and But when I say taken care of next, that probably means now for many policymakers, because going to net zero means that uh, unabated gas uh, has to be uh, addressed uh, relatively soon, both on the side of the role it plays in the short term. So there will be some gas needed. How do we make sure um, it, it comes online and, and, and receives the remuneration it deserves? But also <laughs> when we need to decarbonize it or replace it with, with something clean, what do we do? So I'm just going to come out and ask it. Are we creating a problem now with gas that we have to clean up later? Or is gas a necessary part of the solution and the path to net zero? To be honest, I think, I, you know, when we run our economic transition scenario, this is probably one of the uh, easiest questions to answer. And, and the answer is, we, we're not shooting ourselves in the foot by building gas today. And in fact, over the next decade, uh, building gas is essentially a one-way street, especially as we're retiring uh, coal, but we're also seeing some nuclear retirements. And, you know, the, the question is, what type of gas do we build? Uh, and this is where policy can 
can play a big role, right? Making sure that, for example, where there is an option, we build gas that maybe can burn an alternative fuel so that there is a, a, a kind of like insurance policy in place that these assets, if they want to operate uh, post-2050, they can and they can burn something else beyond gas. Uh, at the same time, I think policymakers need to make it clear today what their expectation is going to be in 2050. Once we go past 2030, building more gas is going to be like shooting ourselves in the foot. However, at the, at the moment, there is no alternative to it, right? So we're going to build it unless something else comes in. And this is where our whole idea around technology X, which is this unknown, perfect replacement for gas that doesn't have the associated emissions comes in. And we've purposely named it technology X because we just don't know right now what's going to win. There are a few options, but cost-wise, we just don't have data to be able to make any kind of call. And, you know, we're being very honest. Our assumptions are going to determine the outcome. And as such, this is not going to be a fair exercise if we come out and say, this is what it is. However, you can expect some work from BNF looking at different pathways. So looking at what a future might look like if this technology X is this or that, like hydrogen, CCS, nuclear. I love how you just casually drop that in. There's this technology X, and we don't 100% know what it is. But you know, that's a really real way of looking at the future, because it, we can't predict what cost curves are going to be for solutions. But we do know that we need an investment into R&D to figure out what they are. And you mentioned hydrogen, you mentioned CCS. Can you talk a little bit about the degree of investment that's going to go into finding technology X, which will help us with the parts that we can't electrify. So, I mean, one, one of the things that that's clear is that hydrogen uh, has probably been the, the second most uh, mentioned thing after COVID uh, in the energy space in, in 2020. I don't know if that's uh, necessarily a good or a bad thing, but uh, I wanted to cover a few of the other technology X's that I think are, are particularly relevant in the European context uh, before saying a bit more uh, on hydrogen. In the bucket technology X, we have interconnectors. And, and one thing that is important to mention is that, of course, in Europe, when you see these uh, coal power plants come offline, or, or, or even in the later term, the, the gas power plants come offline, the flexibility we can give each other by collaborating across borders by having these integrated power markets is, is a huge asset in, in the objective of decarbonizing the power sector. A lot of the countries that will look at reaching net zero that cannot rely on, on a neighboring market. Like if Poland you know, was to close all of its coal without interconnectors, it would make the, the challenge a lot harder. So, so that's one. The other thing is mitigating a little bit that, that need for technology X. One of the things we did in the ambitious policy scenario is that we, we socialized the cost of, of the grid for offshore wind. And I think, you know, so, some of the people seeing our numbers in the ambitious policy scenario will say that they're a, a bit below um, what, what Europe is actually ambitioning for, for the offshore wind sector. And we're hearing a lot about countries collaborating to build grid pl platforms for offshore to, to plug into. And so, of course, there, there is actually a bit of a, of a lever to pull. Now, we do have uh, hydrogen and, and a long section uh, talking about it in our, our technology X basket, and that's driven by the fact that the, the commitments to hydrogen we've, we've heard, heard around Europe uh, are very tangible this time. So there, there is money behind it. There is capacity deployment targets, and, and all of them are more ambitious than what we had 
uh, anticipated just a year ago. And what's interesting with hydrogen is that in theory, you know, a, a hydrogen turbine running on clean hydrogen can, can deliver that dispatchable capacity that the system needs. However, the I mean, Andreas will be able to say that the implication in terms of how much clean energy you need to produce the hydrogen are, are of course, quite quite meaningful. Yeah, actually, that's that's a very good point, Dario. And, you know, I'm definitely convinced that hydrogen is an option, but I'm not convinced that it's yet the option. And probably the biggest reason is, is exactly what Dario, one of the biggest reasons is exactly what Dario just mentioned, that essentially you need renewables to produce that hydrogen. Now, in the case of Europe, uh, in our ambitious policy scenario at the moment, we do see enough wasted uh, renewables, so wind and solar, electricity, we call it curtailed. Uh, essentially, it's, you know, you get moments when the, there's just too much wind or too much solar energy and you end up wasting that electricity. So there's enough of, of that waste to power a good portion of essentially all of the technology X that we see uh, in our outlook. But then when you go into the nuances, you do realize that, for example, you need to oversize your hydrogen production facility because you're essentially looking to capture these moments of extreme overgeneration versus what the industry tends to like, which is, you know, stable, predictable outcome, constantly producing at a good like 70 or 80 percent of my capacity, never going too high, never going too low. Instead, in our outlook, what we would see is it jumps up and down. And this is just to get this little portion of, of grid powered. You know, if we then go to long uh, home mobility, you know, whether it's like long uh, road transport or ships or airplanes, industry, you start adding more and more hydrogen capacity production, which in turn requires more and more renewables. And, you know, it might be a way to, to get there, but at the same time, we need to, th to keep in mind that um, hydrogen has a roughly 60% efficiency from electricity to hydrogen production. And then in that, you need to add whatever efficiency you have on the other end, so on the, the use. So for example, for electricity, uh, if you have green, let's say you have 100 units of green electricity going in, into an electrolyzer, you can expect to get around, of, around 30 back, uh, which is a pretty big loss. And I mean, you know, when you think about the fact that we're now committing to, to net zero by 2050, that, that means in 30 years from now, I think very few of us would have imagined that in their, in their lifetime uh, we'd ever get to, to zero or to, to net zero. And so it would be weird if the challenges and changes that our ambitious policy scenario uh, comes out with weren't a bit crazy. But really, to make all of this possible, the, the message is renewables deployment needs to grow to scales that we were struggling to think about. And if hydrogen has to play its role, we're going to need even more of those renewables. And so I think really that's the, the exercise that we try to do is it's, it's all good and fair to, to raise ambition. But now we need to make uh, what looked pretty impossible not so long ago uh, possible. And we need to start like today. And for that stuff at the edge, is it possible that Technology X is actually just a really messy mix of technologies, plural, that aren't economically the clearest route to the end. We like to think, I think oftentimes, that a lot of technologies will experience these 
cost declines that we've seen in solar and we've seen in wind where people actually want to build them because they're cheaper. Maybe we don't get there. Maybe not everything ends up being the cheaper solution, but that's when we're considering things on a different economic basis and we're not taking into consideration all the costs that are associated with you know, volatile climate and ultimately us having a goal that we're trying to get to. Do you think that the direction of the individual countries and the commission are willing to accept this idea that it's about the finish line isn't necessarily an economic finish line, it's a emissions finish line? I mean, I think it takes me back a little bit to that point earlier of of the different cultures. And and certainly each country will end up with a mixed bag of technology Xs. I I think, you know, as a team, we... We see that and we see that, for example, uh, some Central and Eastern European countries are, are still quite serious about nuclear. Um, the UK has nuclear in, in development. France will certainly um, you know, not fully give up on, on the sector. So I think you'll end up with a mix. But the EU is also uh, this collective planning exercise. And there's actually a lot of sort of peer pressure, but also peer encouragement uh, ongoing. And and now that this energy transition is on everyone's mind and that you get investors uh, following, you've got the regulators looking at what, how do we make sure all of this transition happens at a cost that isn't going to get, uh, you know, completely tank uh, everyone's economy or, or take too much out of the savings of the individuals paying for it. You do see things crystallize around the, the cooler or more favorable technologies fast. But hydrogen is not a cool technology or or, or one that we talk a lot about because it's cheap. It's not cheap yet. It's just one that people look at a lot because of its potential. What I would like to add is we need a technology X. As we said earlier, kind of like we have about a decade to to start building this instead of gas. Otherwise, we might be building things twice. And we're already building quite a bit of capacity for backup. to add, you know, gas to then run it for 10 years and close it is really going to add to cost. The other thing that it may might be worth adding here as a thought for Technology X is that we're obviously looking at the power sector and yes, we are electrifying a big portion of energy use, but that doesn't mean we've managed to electrify everything. And there are still other sectors that cannot be electrified realistically, at least. So it might be worth thinking that, you know, the last 10% of our electricity use will be decarbonized not by a technology that necessarily is the cheapest to produce electricity with but it is the cheapest to decarbonize some other sector and it just happens to be a healthy byproduct that it can also produce electricity i think a good example of this is some gas and coal plants around europe today whose main purpose is to produce heat for industry for um a city and as a bi- healthy byproduct they also produce electricity and you know you see these these plants increase their utilization and efficiency similarly uh, and this is probably one of the big bets with hydrogen you know you could have hydrogen essentially going into sectors that can't be electrified but that do need you know uh, a, an energy molecule and at the same time as a healthy byproduct uh, you're also running your newest gas plants on hydrogen uh, rather than on on gas we, which is where policy would also you know fit in to say from 2030 onwards all gas plants need to be able to burn hydrogen at some point because that might be the case and so yes this, this is probably a, a a good view for the what technology x could be in the future 
So I think I say this every time, but I really look forward to seeing what is going to happen in the future. It's almost like, you know, every day I wake up and read the news and I'm like, oh, let's see how this is evolving and whether or not some of the things that we think about are actually coming to pass. So on that, you know, just as a a closing question, we took a look at this very much from a European perspective and layered that on top of the new energy outlook. Now, I know that both of you approach this as Europe-specific analysts at the time that we wrote this. But if you had to, let's say maybe we've got other colleagues listening now, if you had to give advice to others, what region do you want to see a policy outlook coming for? Maybe we can choose one each uh, and and I'll pick the the easiest one. Uh, Joe Biden's obviously committing to, to net zero power sector by 2035. Uh, but some of our colleagues there think that actually when you're trying to decarbonize the whole economy, necessarily sort of going really hard on, on the power sector right away, whilst you're also electrifying at the same time, might, might be trying to do two things at the same time that are a bit more difficult. So I would love to see the US uh, go next. You and me both, Dario. How about you, Andreas? I'm going to say the other big elephant in the room, China. They've announced a 2060 net zero target. They're known to get things done. They're a powerhouse when it comes to renewables. And uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting path. And I, I think the the country as a whole might be able to take a leading position on, on some newer technologies to kind of like set the cost trend like Europe has been for wind and solar over the past 10 years, essentially set the cost trend for uh, some uh, decarbonizing some other parts of the economy. And that, that would be a very interesting exercise to see what an ambitious policy scenario could look like for China to maybe decarbonize even before 2060, which um, anecdotally, my, my brother who's in love with a country says, uh, he, he keeps on telling me it's, it's very likely that will be the case that, that China will, will get there before 2060. All right. Well, we'll see. I certainly plan to be around in 2060 to see whether or not that is true. <laughs> so let's uh, let's cross that finish line. On that note, thank you very much for joining today, Andreas and Dario. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.